Today's scripture reading is from John 14, 15 through 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, and you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and that you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is the word of the Lord. We continue this morning with our series, The Law of Jesus. And as we've been seeing, there's a great distinction between this law, the law of Jesus, and the law of Moses, which came before it. The law of Moses, which is good and true, could only show us what we needed to know, what we needed to do, who we needed to be but it couldn't do anything to get us there. It couldn't bring the righteousness that God required. The law of Moses couldn't get us to God. The law of Moses says, you must, you must, you must, and the reality is we can't, we won't, and because of that, we're done for. But the law of Jesus, the law of the new covenant is a very different law. The Apostle Paul says this to the Romans, chapter 8 of his letter to them, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, Paul, this time to the Galatians, chapter 6, he says, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, to the God's people scattered throughout the Roman Empire, in James 2.8 says this, if you really fulfill the royal law, you are doing well. And according to James, what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the law that Paul and James and Jesus speak about, it's a law that frees. It's a law that delivers one from burdens. It's a law that manifests itself in love. So very different. Friends, the coming of Jesus changed everything. He's the lens through which we now hear all the commandments of God. And because of our union with him, which Pastor Bob is going to speak about next week in John 15, we are empowered now to do what the law told us to do, but what we couldn't do apart from Jesus. What is that? What did the law tell us to do that we can't do apart from Jesus? Love the Lord with our whole heart, mind, strength, and our neighbor as ourself. In Matthew 22, we see Jesus engaging, as he so often does, with the religious leaders of Israel. 
And there we read, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teach her, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, on these two commandments, love the Lord with your whole being, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says, depend or hang all the law and all the prophets with all their thou shalt nots and thus saith the Lord's. All the law and the prophets come to a head. They, they obtain their goal. They find their fulfillment. They reach their summit in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the love of God embodied and is the perfect example of what it means to love God and neighbor. What is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus was asked? Love. We'll get to John 14 in just a moment, uh, but let me first mention the bigger context of, of these chapters, 13 to 17. Here we have the, the farewell meal of Jesus with his disciples. His farewell act is when he washed their feet in chapter 13. His farewell teaching is when he uh, taught his disciples what some refer to as the upper room discourse in chapters 14 to 16. And then we have his farewell prayer, his high priestly prayer in, in John chapter 17. The whole scene is incredible. When you get a chance, I'd encourage you to sit down and just read through it from 13 to 17. But the part of his teaching that we focus our attention on this morning is chapter 14 and especially verse 31. This one verse holds out two things that we build our lives on, the love of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus. Uh, there's an outline that should have come in your home worship guide. Uh, if not, you can write it down right now. It's really simple. I hope it helps. Three points. Uh, the first, the son loves the father. Second, the son obeys the father. And then third and finally, what the son's loving obedience means for us. So the son loves the father, the son obeys the father, and then we'll end with what his loving obedience means for us. So the first two statements in the outline come from verse 31, which we'll turn to in just a moment. The last statement in the outline is related to verse 31, and we'll pick up some of the rest of the passage too. And here's just a preview of what I'll be saying this morning about these things. Here it is. That Jesus loves the Father is the best possible news because it was out of his love for the Father that he obeyed the Father, and the effect of him obeying his Father is everything he accomplished on our behalf. I'll, I'll say that one more time. That Jesus loves the Father is the best possible news because it was out of his love for the Father that he obeyed the Father, and the effect of him obeying his Father is everything he accomplished on our behalf behalf. Since there's no better place to start, we'll start with the, the first point. The son loves the father. Verse 31, look there if you're not there yet. 
In verse 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now let me ask you, is the end of this sentence spoken by Jesus surprising to you? Is this what, what you would expect him to say at the end of this, this sentence? I mean, I hope it's not a secret that Jesus loves his Father. But if I called you up one afternoon and, and said, hey friend, can you help me out with some Bible, fill in the blank, fill in this sentence from Jesus in the Gospels. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know what? Unless you're really familiar with John 14, what do you imagine you might say? What might you expect to hear Jesus say when it comes to his big, I want the world to know announcement? Uh, maybe I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that a Savior has come. Maybe I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know God loves them. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that there is hope. All of those things are true, but that's not what Jesus says here, is it? No, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. We so often think of Jesus' ministry, his actions, his teachings, his sacrifice as having us as the primary recipients. His coming was for sinners. His death was to bring us to God. His resurrection is what secures our own resurrection. It's all true. He came for us. He died for us. He rose for us. Yes and amen. I hope you can say yes and amen to all of that. But if what Jesus says in John 14, 31 is true, then everything he's done up to this point and everything he will do in his ministry is primarily for one purpose, so that the world might know that he loves his Father. Now, Jesus loves us, and I hope you believe that this morning. I, I hope you feel that deep in your heart, that he loves you, that his heart overflows with love for you, that his love has no limits there's no cost that's too great for him to love you. There's no bounds to it. It never runs out. As we heard in John 13, 1 last week, even knowing that his suffering and death was on the horizon, he doesn't put a pause on his love and service for his disciples. He disrobes and he washes his disciples' feet, even Judas's feet. And we read there, he loved them, he loved them to the end. That is the love of Jesus for us. So often, love for us is the right answer to our Jesus questions. What motivated the coming of Jesus to, to save us? Love for us. What motivates his second coming to complete what he started in us? Love for us. The bridegroom is coming for his bride to take us to himself, to have and to hold, till never do us part, because of his great love for who? Us. The love of Jesus for us is so vast and so wonderful, but do you know what? And if you were here, you would say, what? I heard you. Do you know what? Jesus' first love, his highest love, is not for us. It's not. 
His love above all others is for His Father in heaven. And if it weren't, He would be guilty of idolatry. Idolatry is making anything, even wonderful things, the ultimate thing. And there's nothing more ultimate, nothing higher than God. I love you, Jesus says to us this morning, I love you so much, but I love my Father more. Now what's incredible about love is that Jesus loving God the most in no way diminishes his love for you and me. In no way. It's not as if Jesus had a limited amount of love and after he gives, let's say, 90% of it to his Father, he only has 10% to spread around for the rest of us. Money and power work that way, but love does not. Love is one of those amazing things that grows when you share it. Jonathan Sachs uh, is the former rabbi of England, former chief rabbi of England, and he said this, the state is about power, the market is about wealth. And there are two ways of getting people to do what we want them to do. One of them is to force them to do it, the way of power. The other one is to pay them to do it, the way of wealth. But there's a third way. Imagine for a moment you have total power, and then in a fit of craziness, you decide to share it with nine other people. How much power do you have left? You have one-tenth of what you began with. Supposing you have a thousand pounds, that's uh, money in Britain, you decide to share it with nine other people. How much do you have left? One-tenth of what you had when you began. But now supposing that you decide to share not power or wealth, but love, and you decided to share it with nine others, how much would you have left? Would you have less than when you began? No, you would have more. Why? Because love is something that only exists by virtue of sharing it with others. Sachs goes on to say that love, along with friendship and influence and knowledge, are covenantal goods Goods that the more you share them, the more you have. Jesus loving his father first or even loving his father most does not mean he has less love to go around. It means he has more. His love for his father and the father's love for him creates space so that others can enter into that love. Now, I know this can be pretty abstract, so let me share an illustration from my family. Uh, my wife's name is Julie. We have wonderful uh, 17-year-old twins, Michaela and Micah. And, and I, I, let me just say this. I love my kids so much. I would do anything for them. I, I would sacrifice myself for them. I would die for them. I would swim into a storm to, to save them. And if you know how poor a swimmer I am, you know what a sacrifice that is. But I would do that because I love them. I love my children. But in my family, my first love, the one I love most, is Julie. Now that might sound strange or even awful in a child-centered culture, but I chose Julie to set my love on her, to marry her, to be my wife till death do us part. And in the context of our love, our love for each other, we had Micah 
and Michaela. Or if you adopt, you bring a child or children into the love that exists in your home. Your love, we could say, creates space for others to experience love. When our kids were younger, sometimes they'll, they'll still do it at 17. It's rare, though. But when they were younger, I, Julie and I would be hugging in the kitchen usually, and uh, one or both of them would come over, and, and they would squeeze in between us and say, hey, can I get in on this love? Can I get in on that? It's so cute. I hope it happens again. It's hard to describe, but I kind of think of it like an invisible love force between me and Julie, and the kids want to get in there. They want to step into that. that. That's similar, I think, to what we have in John 14. Jesus and his Father have a unique love relationship. The Father is Jesus' first priority, his first love, and out of the love that exists between them, the overflow of their love, we could say, there is space created for others to enter into and benefit from and enjoy that love. Others can get in on their love, and not just a a twin or two, but whoever may come, there's plenty of room for more. I hope that gives us a sense of what it means when Jesus says, I want the world to know that I love the Father. That's the best possible news for you, that Jesus loves the Father most. So the Son loves the Father, and because He loves the Father, He obeys the Father. Back to verse 31. We'll focus on that first part of the verse. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The the Son obeys the Father. So many examples of this coming in John's Gospel before we got to chapter 14. John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work, Jesus says. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6, 37 and 38, all the Father gives me will come to me. What a precious promise this is. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This desire of Jesus to obey his Father, it's because he loves him. That's what motivates his obedience. Love for his father. It's like someone saying to their beloved, your wish is my command. Jesus delights in doing his father's will, obeying his voice. He loves him, he trusts him. Say it, father, and I will obey. Speak, father, your son is listening. That's his MO. He loves him and because he does, he obeys him. Jesus, he's not on his own timeline. He's not doing things according to his own agenda. He's always doing the will of the Father. His incarnation, his living, his dying, his rising from the dead, the Father willed it all. The Son obeyed it all. Now, we might not be startled to hear that the Father willed his Son's birth or his life or his rising from the dead, but did you know that God the Father willed the death of his own son, the son of his love, his sinless, perfect child? Did you know that? 
There are some who deny this and, and call it divine child abuse, to think that the father's plan included the death of his own son. They find it abhorrent, not the kind of thing that any God they'd want to follow would do. But just because something is difficult or offends our sensibilities does not mean we can just dispense with it. Not like it? Fine. Wrestle with it? Yes, of course. But this is what the Bible tells us. Abraham was willing to put his son Isaac to death but didn't have to. God the Father was willing to put his son Jesus to death and he did. You might remember several years ago the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. Around that time, as is typical for Jesus movies, there were the question that was being asked was, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? It's not an, as easy as we might think. Uh, we could say the Romans, right? I mean, they, they beat him, they mocked him, they put a crown of thorns on him, they nailed his feet and hands to the cross. The Romans killed him, yes? Then we could say, well, the, the Jews killed him, right? Judas was a Jew, he sold him out. The crowd was largely Jewish, crying out for his crucifixion, crucify him. The religious leaders who sold him out to the Romans, they were Jewish. The Jews killed him, okay? Uh, aren't we all guilty of killing the Son of God? Wasn't it for our sins that he died on the tree? Don't we sing how deep the Father's love for us? And that one line that always gets me, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So we could say we killed him, yes, the Romans, the Jews, all of us sinners, we all killed Jesus, that's true. But, but the one who typically gets overlooked when asking the question, who killed Jesus, is the one who made sure it would happen. His father, his own father killed him. For the past 200 years, Christians have been singing this very truth in Thomas Kelly's Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted which is based on Isaiah 53. And, and this from the second verse. You've probably sung this. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And that word justice is capitalized by Kelly because he's referring to God the Father when he says that. The Romans pierced him, the Jews pierced him, you and I pierced him, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Friends, this is a hard truth to, to understand, especially if you have children, that God would, would will the sacrifice, the death of his own child. But as Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 53, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God took no delight in this. He's not sadistic. It certainly grieved him to see his, his sinless, the, the son of his love dying on the tree. But it had to be done. Sin had to be atoned for. Redemption had to be purchased. The father commanded and the son obeyed. It was not without a soul-wrenching struggle on the part of Jesus, right? 
I mean, read Matthew 26, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His full humanity is on display. And Satan's doing his part as well in the betrayal of Judas, in uh, the events that followed. But as it approached, Jesus says in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. And I think he says this to make it clear to his disciples and to us today, Lord willing, that the events that are about to play out, his arrest, his crucifixion, are not ultimately owing to Satan or to evil men, but primarily to the will of the Father. The devil has no claim on Jesus. God does. The devil's will will not prevail. God's will will prevail. Though it might be hard to see in the the pain and suffering and injustice that's about to take place, God, my friends, is orchestrating everything. He's sovereignly in control of everything we see here in the life of Jesus and the Gospels, including the death of the Son of God. God has not lost control of the situation. He never loses control of any situation, including our lives in July of 2020. God commanded His Son to walk this path, the, the, the Via de la Rosa, the way of suffering, and the Son, the Son said like He always has before and always will, yes, I will do what you, Father, command because I love you. The Son loves the Father and because He loves Him, He obeys Him even unto death. This, friends, spills over into blessings for us. Good things beyond our imagination. The gospel is such good news. And whatever you're experiencing during this season of life, I hope that this message this morning would fill you with joy and hope and perseverance to make it through. I'll close with this. What the Son's loving obedience means for us. I think it is reduced to two things in our passage, relationship, and as a result of that relationship, renewal. So first, relationship. The Son's loving obedience for us means that we get to have a relationship with God. And once that relationship has begun, once you've been united to to Jesus by faith, there's never a time that you're alone. God will never leave you or forsake you. He will always, always, always provide for you and be with you and love you. One day, we'll dwell with God and be His people, and He'll be our God in a new heaven and a new earth. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. One day, we'll see Jesus our Lord face to face, and He'll finish what he started in us. He'll take us to the place he's preparing for us. One day, but until that day, we have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God with us and in us. We have a a relationship with God, a love relationship. God's not angry with us anymore because of the obedience of his Son 
on our behalf. Listen to all the relational language from John 14. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Why does his living mean our living too? Because we're connected, we're united to Jesus by faith. We'll see this next week in John 15. We're like a branch connected to a vine, and as long as there's life in that vine, the branches will live. Verse 23, if anyone comes or anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It does not get any closer or more relational than that. Having God come and make his home with you, with me, the Christian life is about relationship. A relationship made possible because of the loving obedience of the Son to his Father. That's what Jesus came to purchase, the removal of our alienation, the removal of our separation from God. Don't miss this. When you read your Bible, when you pray, when you sing, when you sin, when you repent, it's personal. It's relational. We serve a God who wants to sit at the table and eat with us, and one day will. Let's not settle for filling out progress reports or checking boxes. Pull up to the table and ask Jesus for another piece of matzah. If you know Jesus, you're not alone. God is with you. If you know Jesus, you're not an orphan. God is your Father. If you know Jesus, you're alive and well. You are. Even if you get killed, you're alive and well. If you know Jesus, the Father and the Son have come to make their home with you. The Son's loving obedience for us means we get to have a relationship with God. And as a result of our relationship with God, we're changed and we're being changed. We have new capacities, new desires, things not previously available to us. Because of the relationship we have with God the Father, through Jesus the Son, by the Holy Spirit, we are experiencing right now renewal. Renewal. This is the ongoing change that the life of God brings to God's people. People who are in relationship with the true and living God are people of renewal. We will not be able to help it. Who we are, how we think, what we experience, how we live, the gospel will be constantly reworking that in us, changing everything about us. And according to our passage, there's two types of changes or two places we could say where renewal is happening. There's renewal on the inside and there's renewal on the outside. Renewal on the inside. These are things like uh, peace and joy and faith that's mentioned in verses 27 to 29. It's the fruit of the Spirit growing in us. You're saved by God, heaven when you die, but right now we're being renewed day by day, and the Spirit of God is forming our mind and our heart, bringing change, more and more Christ-likeness to us 
here and now. And in addition to that, that inner renewal, we're being renewed on the outside. Renewal on the outside. That's your Jesus following will actually include following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You'll look and sound more and more like him to others on the outside. If we love Jesus, we'll do what he says. Obedience. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keep them, keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. To love Jesus is to keep his commandments. To keep his commandments is to love him. It's kind of this cyclical thing. Love for and obedience to Jesus according to Jesus are inseparable. You won't have one without the other. Jesus' love for the Father showed up in his obedience and our love for God, our love for Jesus will show up in our obedience too. Jackie DeShannon was right when she sang in April of 1965, one month after the United States got into the Vietnam War, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And friends, there is no sweeter love than the love of God. We praise you, Lord. There is none like you. May we hear and obey you this morning, however it is you're calling each of us to obey. And Lord, please, may we do so from hearts of love for you. We pray glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. Amen.